0: So I have a free gift for you. I realize that might sound a little say-spitchy, but legit, free gift. I have a practice log, which I've been using for a few years with my clients and for myself. I use it both for practicing my instrument, if I'm practicing piano or any other instruments I play, or for my workout routine. It's super simple to use, and you can go download it for free at holisticpianoacademy.com. There's no catch, it's just something I've really found to be extremely beneficial in these very trying times to find some clarity and set priorities. So if there's something you'd like to avail, go to holisticpianoacademy.com Today's guest is Abhishek Bhattara, an extremely inspiring brother whose story happens to encounter has a lot of parallels to the trajectory my life and career seems to have been taking these recent months. Um, the conversation, like most of the ones we have on the podcast, speaks for itself. So I don't want to get into details right now. I just want to say it was fantastic catching up with this guy. And uh, please go support his work. And uh, without much further ado, here we go. Abhishek Patra. Hello, fellow beings. Welcome to Tapasya Loading, a safe space to attempt honest, raw and authentic conversations. March to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire we are abhishek abhishek yeah. okay Abishek. welcome abhishek welcome yeah. and thanks for doing this
1: thank you very much dear man finally i'm very happy to connect with you i know we've been speaking online for uh, for a while but uh, it's is really a pleasure to finally get to talk to you and uh yeah catch up discuss yeah, we'll see what
0: happens it's an yeah. honor and a pleasure to have you on as well i've been following your work for a few years now and uh, wow. i've been a fan of sorts and it's been very inspiring to see the trajectory of your work the manner in which you've been navigating your artistic life between europe and nepal and i'm very mm-hmm. curious i'm very curious about your story so just talk to have you on man um, nice man tell me man uh you're literally, uh, and I'm almost embarrassed to say this, you're literally the only Nepalese jazz musician I know of. Why is that?
1: <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, wow. Quite a bombshell to drop, man. <laughs> I know, right? I just right. went straight
0: for the jugular. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, um, I mean, I'm, all, so I'm it, it's my bad, of course, but yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But what's going on here? Mm-hmm. What's the story?
1: Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, it's um, jazz. Is is fairly new uh, to Nepal, I would say, relatively, especially you know, compared to other genres. Um, I was lucky enough to like, you know, like be a part of it or or grasp it or be inspired by it, like right at the beginning when it started. Mm-hmm. Um, How did it start it was,
0: for you?
1: Um, it, uh, there were a few musicians who were very crucial in shaping jazz in Nepal, and they were actually from um, from Darjeeling. There's this band called Karenza. Uh, Darjeeling from West Bengal. Yeah,
0: um, I grew. I spent yeah. a lot of time in Darjeeling as a kid. Actually, that's amazing.
1: Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there was a. It's still common now, but there was a time when there was a lot of musicians coming in from Darjeeling and Sikkim, oh. uh, those parts, uh, coming to work in Kathmandu. You know, like coming to work in the hotels, the casinos, uh, when when tourism was quite booming. Let's say. So there was this group. I I'm pretty sure they were not called Karenza. Uh, back then. Now, Kerenza is still active. They're called Kerenza Collective and I'm very, very gladly uh, part of it as well. I mean, at least a regular um, featuring guest. Uh, but this band uh, was founded by Novin Chatri and Praveen Chatri and, and and a few other guys. I, sh- I should really do my research well. But uh, but the brothers from Darjeeling, they came to Nepal They started as just, um, you know, like any other cover band, actually. They were playing a lot of funk music. And then slowly, somehow in their history, they kind of got into jazz and pretty much started jazz, you know, like uh, standards, uh, vocal jazz, very much like Uh, you know, hotel-friendly music. I'd say like lounge stuff. Gotcha. Um, and and they started like that. That kind of spread into um, that led them into doing their own music, which was originally very much funk-inspired. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of jazz in that as well. And then so funk I like caught them s- doing,
0: 70s straight-ahead mm-hmm. funk, or like jazz fusion funk, or like post jazz. Uh,
1: more. Uh, not so much jazz fusion, actually, no. Okay. In fact, uh, I mean, like when, when they actually started out, they they even had some songs. They were kind of close to Red Hot Chili Peppers kind of funk, right? Sweet. But then that kind of slowly started to kind of get in some, some um, jazz influences, like also the instruments. You know, there were some traveling musicians, uh, horn players, because uh, like in Nepal, even till this day, we don't really have a lot of horn players. Mm-hmm. So that kind of shaped their sound as well. And they did a few funk albums, some some like uh, kind of pop-jazz collaborations as well. But there was this one album called uh, Jazz at Patan. Uh, and Patan is this uh, beautiful, it's an ancient part of Kathmandu uh, Valley. It's, it was an ancient city, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still thriving and beautiful at the moment, but... Uh, they did this concert there in in the museum. There's a quartet in the museum. I didn't attend that concert. I was I was I, I was aware of jazz and these guys, but I was too young to be going out and going to these concerts. But they did this concert uh, and in as part of uh, the first festival, jazz festival in Nepal called Jazz Mandu. So they also organized this festival. If if anyone's aware of that festival, Jazz Mandu is still um the biggest jazz festival in nepal there's only two uh, at the moment Beautiful. but uh it's so quite a bit that actually, fest-
0: for such a small country if you think about it
1: yeah i mean the other one is actually I'm, I'm part of it because uh from from the school that i work in i work at the Kathmandu Jazz Conservatory and through the, i guess we'll talk about that later sure. but through that school we also do another jazz festival which is kind of focused on jazz education Excellent. but yeah we, we can get to that later i guess but but Jazzmandu, is, um, it was a jazz festival which which, uh, which um, attracted a lot of international musicians, lots from India as well. Actually, every year we have pretty good Indian bands, but all over the world, you know, Germany, um, I mean, all of Europe, U.S., Australia. But this one particular event, Jazz pattern was kind of dedicated to Fusion Night. Right, fusion in the sense East meets uh, meets West kind of fusion, right? Not jazz fusion. Uh, and the idea was like all these musicians who come to play for the festival, including Karenza, the the our Nepali and Indian boys. Uh, they they kind of like they have a few days, two three days to put together a fusion concert, right? So they. They choose some traditional musicians, some folk musicians, from Eastern classical musicians, usually from the Hindustani background, and and they put on a show in collaboration with them. And essentially, they actually play standards, jazz standards, but with that fusion touch. So wow. that album actually was one of the first albums that that uh, I discovered from Cadenza, and then I was like, um, I still can't describe how I felt, but it felt amazing. You know, I really couldn't understand what was going on. Uh, I couldn't really tell you know and back then maybe you don't even care about like is it improvised how much it is improvised i don't know but like i remember feeling great and like this amazing energy and i wanted to be part of that energy somehow that's how i remember so um yeah long story short it was due to this band they kind of uh you know lit the spark and let's have the name of the band again please uh Karenza, they were called Carenza back then and now they're called Currenza Collective because they feature a lot of...
0: Beautiful. So I just want to put it out there once more properly for my listeners.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely, man. I'm, I think you can find Jazz, Jazz, uh, Jazz at pattern in YouTube. I don't know if that's a legal link, but I do because I know I tried finding that in Spotify, Apple. I couldn't find it. But yeah, through that, they started that. This is 15 years ago, I'd say. Um, something like that. And they, they they ignited the spark, let's say, and and... Through that, uh, again, these guys were responsible for kind of starting sessions, sorry, jazz sessions in Kathmandu, and which brought in a lot of uh, traveling musicians, uh, educators. Uh, I started to kind of follow them around. Uh, Eventually, I got really inspired, and then kind of. Um,
0: Yeah, your earliest, your earliest encounters, earliest memories of music. Could you tell us a little about that?
1: Yeah, I definitely. Uh, I, I wish I had a more interesting story, man. <laughs> I definitely didn't have a musical upbringing. Like no one in my family uh, is, uh, let's say, most of them were not interested in music or or happen to be musicians. Um, so my first radio really encounter was uh, some of my cousins. I guess they 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 got me into into rock, like especially especially the classic rock kind of scene. So it was very much like that, yeah, through that, through radio, through some of my cousins who were getting into that. One of my cousins used to play guitar. So yeah, anyway, my first encounters, at least like, you know, like kind of being curious about music or loving music was um, definitely when I started listening to, to, I don't know, bands like Guns N' Roses and, and Led Zeppelin. Um, Hell yeah, not I that before that, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> not that before that, I I hadn't discovered music, but let's say I wasn't really interested in it. Uh, but yeah, definitely, like kind of got me into rock. Like that was a big part in my life. Like I was definitely a rockhead for a while. Uh, uh, like not only uh, you know someone who appreciates and listens to rock, uh, and later on to metal and stuff but I also played a lot of that. My first instrument was actually. Uh, the bass and the guitar kind of some uh, both at the same time yeah awesome man yeah yeah yeah. I started uh, like you know when you're in school and then you're in cover bands or you're trying to play covers so I started with bass the only I'm pretty sure the only reason I ended up with bass was I wasn't good enough to play guitar so all my friends were like I think you can handle bass so just play bass (laughs) and (laughs) that's probably how it happened yeah it's funny after
0: uh, in my case after 20 years of working as a professional keyboardist I realized I'm probably more bass player at heart than a pianist, actually.
1: Yeah, no way, man. I like, I still have, you know, despite being a professional musician a full-time musician, I still have this innate, like a childish desire to be a bass player. I still have that, you know. It's like, I wish I could like groove. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) and I do still play. Same here. I think, uh,
0: um, I'm not sure how you, uh, which generation you are. I'm 42. In my generation, I think also the instrument keyboards generally, especially in countries, which went as, um, which didn't have as much access to keyboards, because keyboards were really expensive instruments back in the day, right? Like, um, yeah, I spent my uh, teenage years here. Uh, I grew up in different places, but I spent my teenage years where I really started getting into music seriously in India, and like, you could mm-hmm. barely get your hands on a decent professional keyboard, and even if you did, uh, you know, a lot of the times it would be defunct, and uh, you were navigating how to even use that thing yeah and the role of a keyboard player was so abstract uh, most a lot of bands would just expect you to just put, mm-hmm. put a you know yeah take on the strip orchestra parts so or just play the cheesy um uh, electric piano things instead stuff. anyway um
1: yeah absolutely man actually i should have specified um i mean i did like i said my first instrument or me uh my experience of like having fun with music was the bass and the guitar but actually i do remember in school uh, even even the fact that in Nepal, uh, like music education is really not 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 good, not even now, but at least in school there were some like music uh, clubs, uh, like extra curricular activities. and there i there I did discover the harmonium, right? And oh, then wow. I actually did play. yeah, I did play, it, but I don't even want to consider it because like that's that's the thing, no like I wasn't really connected to the music. I was just playing it after school and stuff. And uh, like you said, the harmonium was there, but there was also these keyboards and most of them are like this toy keyboard kind of thing and you would rarely kind of come across a good sounding keyboard or keyboard with good feel so i think that also i'm sure that would have i never thought about it like that actually i'm sure that would have affected my choices like it just didn't feel nice you know these plastic things that don't really sound great exactly. uh, and then the bass and the guitars always just they seem cooler so i think yeah maybe i had a thing for keyboard or piano when i was young but yeah fortunately the access wasn't there
0: yeah. I don't know about you, but I ended up becoming a keyboard player because there was just no one else around who played keyboards, even at a, at a very, like an extremely basic, decent level. And uh, since I had had some piano lessons, everyone just... And I, and I had a couple of keyboards, which in itself was also a privilege in my environment at the time. Uh, so I just ended up becoming mm-hmm. a keyboard player by default. But in my heart, I think yeah, I was always more into the songwriting and playing bass and stuff. But I, I was just winging yeah. it, winging it until eventually I was... Working as a keyboard player, but uh, sorry, I uh, didn't want to make this about me. Let's let's get back to your story. <laughs> but I couldn't help but no, see a few parallels there. Yes,
1: yeah, so I started with like kind of those bi- uh, rock kind of scene. Uh, let's say, yeah.
0: Beautiful. I I grew up on a lot of Guns and Roses and Aerosmith and um yeah. floyd and Deep Purple as well. I think this area of the world as well. I think like Nepal or okay, even Bengal, West Bengal. Yeah. There's a strange Absolutely. connection to the the very specific kind of rock music, not just rock music in general, but there's a very specific yeah. kind of rock. I wonder if these bands like the Guns N' Roses or Pink Flood know about how many times they're how often and like an entire generation the manner in which how they've grown up on their music.
1: Um, I, I think of, I think about that a lot. Kind of the shared taste in in, in this region. Um, and I, I was drawing this parallel a few couple of weeks ago with some of my friends um, from from Chile, from South America. Mm. And uh, and we were kind of comparing the same thing, actually, how, how... they Because we're talking about the same thing. They were also like, yeah, they totally grew up on Metallica and, and Guns N' Roses and, 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 and the whole grunge scene as well. And at least in Nepal, I was thinking, why is that? How come, like, Nepal, India, we all have kind of this kind of, uh, selected bands and we all know all the albums in and out, uh, like the only answer I could come up with is actually for some reason, these were the albums that were pirated in to to Nepal. Uh, and then I, I don't know if I should be saying this, but like most of my, you know, like most of the records that I listened to as a kid were pirated.
0: Oh yeah, sure. Right, I mean, just, at this yeah. point, I mean, uh, hello Spotify. I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I hardly, at hardly, at hardly, point, hardly think yeah. it makes much of a difference at this point, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I told yeah. You So
1: I think all these albums that came into Nepal Like pirated through China Or I don't know sort of Somewhere And then everyone was Ended up listening to the same kind of uh, Movement Same kind of bands I think similar thing happened to India maybe
0: Yeah At uh, which point did you realize You wanted to be a piano player?
1: Um,
0: and also a jazz piano yeah. player
1: Yeah That came in quite late man To be honest uh, I I I didn't make the decision to be a full-time musician up until when I was uh, 23. I'd say now I'm 33. Mm-hmm. Um, so just 10 years ago, I it was really like, uh, I made the decision, even even though that I had been performing music and playing music since I was 16. Uh, even professionally, actually, since I think after uh, high school, so around 18 and 19, I was already professionally working. I was gigging in the cover band scene, also slowly getting into jazz, also and then also through my rock band, you know, like really professionally making money, even teaching, but up until even 23, I, uh, for, I don't know, for some reason, you know, I mean, for the reasons that I can explain, I guess, but like, um, uh, I, I wasn't really comfortable uh, calling music as a profession for me. I always thought I, I was good at it, sure, but I, I didn't know if I want to pursue it as a full-time career, I always thought, um, there will be something on the side, so that's why I also I was going to university. You know, I was doing my business degree. I was I also did an art degree and all that. So mm. uh, only when I was twenty three, it kind of you know a lot of things made sense in my life. It kind of really hit me that actually this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, this is what brings me the most joy. Uh, and then that was also the age in twenty three. I decided that okay, uh, I I think I want to um, also study music. Normally, right, mm-hmm. and then that was that was when I decided to go to Europe to to study in the Netherlands. Um, so yeah, it was quite late in my career. Excellent.
0: That I, That's when I started um, uh, getting to know you. I found a few common friends of uh, ours. Um, mm-hmm. But before we um, get on to that part to your um, mm-hmm. you know your journey in Europe, may I ask you at the time when you were still um, on the fence with regards to if music is what you wanted to pursue full time. Could we talk a little yeah. about the doubts and the fears you were dealing with? Because I think that's something my listeners would be really interested in. What were the doubts and these fears, mm-hmm. and what, what sure, were? Man. How did you overcome them?
1: Yeah, I um, to to put it very simply, I think I I had this crippling fear that I wasn't. Um, I don't want to say good enough because I knew that I was good enough in the sense that I can I can be in the industry I can work with people right I knew that but I just had this crippling fear that I'm not let's say I don't have anything to say actually I'm not original enough I don't think I'm the kind of musician who will even come up with his own music you know wow. so because up until that you know up until that point like uh, 18 from my uh, from my late uh, teens to 23, I was active a lot, but I was mostly playing other people's music. Gotcha. I was, you know, even, even jazz, like, you know, playing standards, improvising, which felt amazing. It was very inspiring. Even some popular music that I did, uh, some rock bands. Like, the most involved I was in terms of writing was in my rock band called Jindabad. Uh, and in, even in that band, it was a joint collaborative effort. So I would kind of throw in a few things. But up until that point, I had this crippling fear that, yeah, I'm not really a writer. You know, I, I don't really have much to say. Uh, and then, yeah, so that, that fear like alone. Imposter like imposter syndrome? Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Wow, <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. I think, yeah. Yeah, it's classic. Uh, man. It's amazing
0: not, how much we all have in common, right? I mean, that was, yeah. That was that, that's a classic. I mean, welcome to the club.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it was mostly that—not that I was unhappy, like uh, in the sense I just—I some reason I knew like uh, this is what I like to do in music, like play a lot, jam a lot, play other people's music, be on stage. I used to do it well. I used to like doing it. Uh, so it's not that I wasn't unhappy, but I just, uh, in the back of my mind, I was just thinking that, yeah, this is a part-time thing. And maybe I'll even keep doing it for the rest of my life, but like kind of keep it casual like this. Uh, but yeah, it was <clears throat> only when I was 23 that really uh, kind of made me start. The, I started writing a little bit, maybe, like when I was 21, 22, I started writing my own music. Um, I struggle with that even Even to this day, man, even to this day, like kind of maybe I'm a perfectionist, uh, but I remember especially those years, like I wrote a lot of stuff that never got released, always thinking that it wasn't good enough. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there was that struggle maybe started around when I was 21, 22, um, and then around 23, that's when I was like, well, maybe the problem is also because I'm not kind of my attitude towards it. I keep saying to myself that is is sort of a hobby and and I'm not I tell myself that I'm not a writer and stuff. So I started changing that attitude to see how that's gonna feel like. Uh, that also made me realize maybe I should go to school, you know, like because in in Nepal, um, especially at that point when I was twenty three, it wasn't a good time to be a musician or in fact even it wasn't a good time to be in Nepal, like it was one of the worst times the, the huge political crisis we had this thing called load shedding I don't know if anyone knows oh yeah uh, well, like, well
0: I do I do I grew up in load yeah I'm sure you do. <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> yeah. right so the listeners, electricity cuts basically yeah yeah yeah
1: so for all the listeners who don't know that is like in the because we had a power crisis like uh, power in the sense electricity crisis and then so the government or the electricity whatever people they have to, to um, they were limited resources so at at one point I remember the last year, I before going to Europe, there was like 18 hours of power cuts per day. Wow. Uh, 18 hours, man. Yeah, so like, uh, <laughs> you know, that's most of the day. And especially being a keyboardist, because I wasn't a pianist. The piano is not a common instrument in Nepal. A keyboardist oh is which relies on electricity. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was horrible. It was horrible. So uh, like, Hard relate, man. Really? I,
0: think, I, th- I think the longest streak I did was, I think, 11 hours, I remember, as a teenager. Because um, uh, I live really yeah, close yeah. by. Like, I mean, Calcutta is just like a couple of hours away from Kathmandu, which is where my ancestral city is, and I was uh, living here as well. Okay. So I think, oh,
1: but uh, I actually I had no idea you guys also had it, man. Oh, yeah, no absolutely. <laughs> we even used
0: the same word, load shedding. So it's, uh, it's, it's great. it's literally the same word that was being used as well. So intimately familiar, um, yeah. Yeah, I'm. I'm so so stoked to meet someone who knows what the word load shedding means. You're literally the first guest. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: know. Like as I was saying, it, as I was saying, and I was like, should I say it? Like, <laughs> does anyone even know what that is?
0: No, thank God you did.
1: So around that time, it was quite frustrating uh, being a musician generally here. So I started to change my attitude, like at least you know, wondering like, hey, maybe I, I don't consider myself a, a full time musician or a songwriter or a composer. Um, because I don't, maybe the the environment is not right, you know, maybe I don't have the right kind of people uh, inspiring me, maybe not the right kind of scene. So I decided maybe, uh, let's go to school, uh, to a music school. It's always, it's been a long, long dream of mine to kind of study music. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I decided maybe now's the time I had saved up a little to kind of pay for the first year at least. And then I just, you know, like without almost without much thought, I was like, let's try it. I have uh, saved up for to study a year. Let's see if it works out. Amazing. Um, and then I just go, got go, yeah, go ahead
0: with it. Yeah. Beautiful. So, so you did yeah. some, you did some yeah, load shedding nice. of your own. <laughs> I mean, I was referring yeah. to shedding baggage yeah. and just uh, changing the narrative of your life. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: yeah. Um, how was that like? How uh, at which at which point? Or uh, let me rephrase that. Mm. Well, why did you choose the Netherlands? I'm curious about that. yeah you know, that's one question. Mm-hmm. the primary cause behind that. And what were your first impressions of um, living in Europe?
1: yeah um, So Netherlands because um, so a very important uh, part of my musical development is is the Catton Jazz Conservatory, which is where I work and I also direct the academics mm-hmm. now, but I was a student there. Uh, back uh, back in the day when I was that age, 22, oh, 23. Um, and, and so when I was a student there, uh, the, the the school, uh, much uh, like now also, used to attract a lot of visiting uh, educators. Uh, there were a few Dutch educators uh, at that time, and uh, no. Jakob van Den Doel is his name. He was he actually taught me some piano back uh, then, uh, and he kind of. Uh, you know, hinted that maybe I should look into Netherlands as well because before that I was obsessed with studying in the U.S., um, kind of for some reason, I thought that yeah, if you if if you are interested in jazz, like you have to go to US, you have to be in New York, mm-hmm. and and study there. That's the only way. Um, so I had actually applied to quite some schools in the US as well. Um, before Netherlands, I had applied to UK, I had applied to US, uh, and one of my dream schools, actually the the new School of Jazz and Contemporary Music in New York. Yeah, um, I place. yeah yeah I applied there and I got in as well. Uh, this was in so when I was twenty-three. Yeah, so just when I dad decided, like this whole thing I was talking about that I'm going to study music, the first school that I applied, one of the first schools that I applied was in New York, the New School of Jazz and Contemporary Music. I got in. I was like thrilled. I was like, wow, this is the dream school. But you know, I was counting on some kind of scholarship because the the tuition's there is like. Here. I, remember reading the, yeah, I remember reading the letter and I was so happy but then the tuition at the bottom was like $36,000 per year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I yeah. think you and me both we understand like what that means in this part of the world. Oh, very uh, much. So I remember
0: getting, receiving my first brochures and I was like is, there, is this a is, there a is that a typo? Like are these figures for real? <laughs> I had to it took a while to wrap my head around that. And uh,
1: yeah. yeah. Yeah, so yeah, that's the, um, so then US was out of the question maybe I should have applied to more schools I would just talk on like yeah that's the school I want to go in because all my heroes went to that school but anyway after that um, so some some of some of the people that I met including uh, my piano teacher and when I was a student Jakob from from Amsterdam he told me about the Netherlands and there's good schools there and that I should also look into Europe in general, especially Belgium and Germany, uh, which is where you were based and I'd love to talk about that as well. Yeah, but sure. uh, Netherlands, yeah, kind of it. I my options were narrowed down quite a lot because uh, at least back then, uh, six years ago, I don't think that has changed, but at least six years ago, Netherlands and Belgium were the only two countries or or the countries uh, that have conservatories teaching in English, at least having the option to study English. Right, because... Uh, so because every like I'm sure in Germany I'm sure you like is mostly taught in German yeah and any other countries like France like I mean a lot of France, Spain all these uh, like Germany have amazing music education amazing jazz education I'd yes, say yes. Uh, but yeah my options were just like just Belgium or Netherlands uh, because those were the schools offering in, in in English so then I applied to Amsterdam and Rotterdam uh, I got into both but then um I chose Rotterdam because I was researching the teachers there and I happened to dig the teachers there. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, that's how I ended up there. Maybe a quick uh, fun fact (laughs) would be that uh, because up until now we've been uh, talking about myself uh, as a jazz pianist, which I do like to identify as. But when I had applied to the Netherlands, um, I applied for a composition degree a jazz composition degree and that's what I studied actually I didn't study jazz piano what I studied is jazz composition and arranging and uh, the, the funny story behind that is like the only reason I did that was uh, at least back then now it has changed and it's changing. but back then if you had to audition to study jazz piano or whatever jazz performance based degrees you had to fly in there and audition with them right You had to go there, you had to do the audition, play with the uh, play with the band there and then do your theory and ear- training tests all of that and then fly back home and then wait for your oh my god. Yeah. So uh, I couldn't do that. There's no way I could afford to do that. And it's not only it's not only about affording, but it's just like, man, just getting a visa, you know, like just being uh, in the party and getting a visa to the Netherlands for an audition, like very less chances to to, to get that.
0: I'm very glad you addressed this, by the way, because it's, it's the kind of fun fact uh, most of the world has no clue about.
1: Yeah. So I kind of, you know, thought that, hey, because uh, I was going through the website, and then I was like, oh f- to study jazz composition, you don't need to go there and audition. The audition is actually sending your music and sending your recordings, sending your scores and doing an online theory uh, theory and uh, ear training test. And then I was like, hey, so I'll do that. I'll apply for jazz composition, even though I don't know anything about it. And I have a composer and we, you know, just a couple of minutes ago, we went through the whole thing about me feeling like I'm not a composer. But then I, I decided that, yeah, I'm going to take that Um, that uh, path and then once I get there maybe I'll switch to jazz piano because that'll be easier and I'm glad I didn't because uh, the teacher that I got there like even I remember the first lesson I felt like it felt so amazing I was like man this is what I should be studying and then like that whole thing fell into place this whole imposter syndrome and everything and my struggle with writing I was like maybe this is what I needed to do and and since then I've been I identify myself as a composer first and then a pianist. Um, but yeah, it was funny, man. Those years um, because I so I decided not to go to the U.S. and then I decided I'm going to take one more year, put together an application for some conservators in Europe, and then figure out how to compose. So then, yeah, then I just started composing, and that was the best thing ever, man. Maybe I should have mentioned that when when we were talking about how did I overcome that. But how I overcame that is because I had to compose. Mm -hmm. I had to put together a portfolio of at least three compositions to send to this school. And then I just started writing more like recycling my old ideas, you know, trusting my old ideas and thinking that, Hey, I think I can piece this together. And then I also had to figure out the whole writing process actually, because my reading and writing music wasn't so good, Mm -hmm. definitely not up to the level of European conservatories and what they expect. Uh, So I learned like how to use Sibelias and make my own scores. So in a matter of a few months, Six months, I put together those three compositions, uh, wrote it out horribly. I remember the audition. My teacher told me that, yeah, yeah I like your music, but your writing is like, uh, like un- it's not possible to understand there's so many mistakes and no. all that. But, but I'm glad he trusted my writing. And then, yeah. So, yeah, that's how I ended up studying composition. I ended up in Netherlands. Hard relate, man.
0: I actually applied to U.S. Uh, in the beginning as well. Uh, and uh, I got through to Berkeley, except uh, very similar to you, I looked at the tuition fees. I was like, Whoa, "Okay, like uh, mind-boggling." And I had, um, well, I had did have an inkling as to, yeah, obviously these are very expensive elite educations, but yeah. the the mm-hmm. the degree of uh, like the disparity in the figures was still a lot to uh, for my for me to wrap my head around because here's the thing even though i uh, yeah. grew up in europe as a kid i still you know i grew up in a very uh, closed community of uh, south asian people who most mm-hmm. of whom were doctors and academics mm-hmm. and uh, i was already breaking mm-hmm. so many rules at the time because i was going to go study music you know? and then to want to pay that kind of money for an education it was just Not on the table. No.
1: no. So
0: then Berkeley started sending me these uh, um, brochures on the partner schools in Europe. And one of them happened to be in this tiny little town in Germany called Freiburg, uh, who I happen to have family in, or where I happen to have family in. So that was a happy coincidence. and. uh, and also, I also remember the the fears of having to. Uh, I, I did grow up with a little bit of German because part of my family is German, but it was still not. It was not a language I could like really communicate in. But this institute, mm-hmm. were being affiliated to Berkeley, being a college, ha- offered mm-hmm. a hybrid uh, approach, so where you could do most of your lessons in English and some were only in German. So it basically gave you a soft landing ground wherein you could start off with English and learn German as you go. It, it's, they changed the rules mm-hmm. now, but this was a very different time. So I can intimately yeah. relate to the, some of these um, um, struggles, if you may, you're going through. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Um, it's very inspiring to hear um, the manner in which you've navigated <laughs> these uh, waters, man. <laughs> Mad respect. Yeah. Uh, and also the reading and um. the writing. Like When I landed there, everyone was like everyone liked my playing a lot. I would have actually liked Mm -hmm. to study composition, by the way, but they didn't have a composition degree at the time. It was only, you could only do Mm -hmm. instrumental studies. So everyone liked my playing, Mm -hmm. but my reading was a catastrophe. I'm still a very poor reader for, you know, by European standards. Um,
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I I flunked, I I was constantly flunking my sight reading exams and had to figure out (laughs) a manner in which how to... Same here, man. yeah. Yeah,
1: really? Same here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, reading—not only reading, but like also ear training—was one of my struggles. Actually, that's the only thing I failed. I remember in in, in music school, really. But uh, yeah, man, and especially uh, especially for a pianist like this, and and comp- and a uh, composition student, the the level of reading is like relatively quite high. Yeah. Um, so I definitely didn't have it, and and as you said, I'm still I still consider myself I could I still practice every day mm-hmm. <laughs> reading. Mm-hmm. I still need to get my chops up. Yeah.
0: Excellent. Blood, yeah. That's very mm-hmm. inspiring. I, I I I aim to practice sight reading every day, but I'm, yeah, I'm a I'm a chancer there. I haven't been very, yeah, yeah. A lot of guilt coming up right now. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah, my piano teacher is standing right next to me right now. The one who gave me all that grief for my sight reading. Anyway, uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. That's a whole different story though. So uh, tell us about your first like, initial, not just the musical experience. I mean, uh, th- that obviously was uh, a very positive experience. What were your cultural experiences like? I mean, you're from Kathmandu, which is a very cosmopolitan city, I happen to know. But um, what was it like? Was this the first time you were in Europe?
1: Yeah, it was the first time I uh, ever like lived anywhere else, actually. Um, so I, I don't think I've... Uh, yeah, actually, yeah, before going to the Netherlands, I hadn't... Traveled um, anywhere outside of Asia. The only places I've been to was India and Thailand. Actually, I remember. So it was a huge, uh, huge shock. Huge shock. Um, Tell us about the shocks. Yeah, I mean.
0: Um, What's the first thing that shocked you?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Man, just like I don't know, just like navi- like I don't know where to start. Like I mean, you say Kathmandu is a cosmopolitan city, but not really. It's still. It still feels like a big small town you know it's like i don't know mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes sense but uh yeah so like you know just being able to use the metro and the, like the trains like all, every single thing man every single thing when i started to go there everything was an experience so uh like uh and well and the fact that uh fortunately netherlands is quite like uh, quite uh accessible in terms of uh english speakers i uh, sorry, i didn't phrase that right but anyway everyone speaks english there and then they're pretty good at it right yes. so yes. you don't really struggle with that I, I i would imagine maybe in in some ways it's better than germany in the sense that more people are um uh, fluent in english definitely
0: definitely yeah the netherlands generally are a lot more global friendly than germany germany is catching up uh, I mean, cities like Berlin, uh, you could, I mean, uh, my roommate in Berlin is Japanese. He, he's he been in Berlin for 10 years, doesn't speak a word of German. But um, it's, it's still, I mean, Netherlands has been uh, a lot more yeah. global for a while now. You're right.
1: Exactly. So at least there was that, but still despite that, man, like just being able to, like, uh, find the right train stations and stuff. Like, just the fact of, like, I don't know, I sound like an idiot, but, like, I've never been on a train. You know? I've never been on a proper train or train stations buying the tickets and, and uh, you know, being able to read a bit of Dutch and stuff. So all of that was huge, like, very new experience for me. I'd never imagined that in my life.
0: You don't sound like an idiot at all. I can relate to that very well. Another thing, <laughs> I, also, I think one of the marked differences between uh, European everyday lifestyle and Asian lifestyle is, uh, you don't have to come from a privileged background just to like not have to struggle on the street you know like everyone uses the metro yeah. you know you don't see this huge divide yeah. between you know um i'm not sure how yeah. uh, i don't know much about kathmandu but in most uh, metropolitans in india uh, people who with a certain educational and financial background just don't use public transport they'll just use an uber or they'll just use a, use a car yeah you know, it's um, yeah. Actually,
1: yeah. I noticed that in India, yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. I mean, here it's not. Yeah, the public transportation. You
0: no, know. I sound like yeah. an idiot, but that's one of the first things what, disparities that still I still never really get used to. Uh, you have you don't have billionaires using the metro in Asia, not very often. At least not in India.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So so yeah, like you know, they like because of that reason, I guess. Just the day to day lives uh, stuff. It took me a while. I used to get lost a lot in my own own neighborhood (laughs) Uh, and then yeah like you know food uh, took me a while to figure that out Um, and also uh, I guess the biggest shock would be the music uh, education itself Uh, like being in actually in art school and surrounded by all these artists uh, and because that's something that I wasn't used to, like I like I said, I, I did go to the Kathmandu Jazz Conservatory. Here, it's not much of a conservatory; it's a very small school. Um, so, yeah, like that, the language, um, the food was a while. Just being able to be part of that system, you know, having a credit card, all that stuff, mm. and and is is. Like uh, I found that very crazy that how everything. I felt like I was being washed all the time in the sense that, you know, you have a card for a card for a card, and then like you just swipe and check and and you know all these things to do anything, you know, to buy food. Like you know, people don't even deal with cash so much. So yeah, it was a completely different way of living. I Kathmandu is very different to that. Even now. Even now, to uh, when it comes to that, that way of living is not Kathmandu hasn't caught up yet for sure. The seven years, almost seven years, I lived there. I only came back to Nepal once, wow. uh, but so I used to miss him a lot, and the, and the food and stuff uh, a lot, the Nepali culture a lot, because in Netherlands uh, there's not a big Nepali community at all, mm-hmm. especially back then. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like the first two years, uh, first two years actually of living in Netherlands, I only met. Um, like uh, ha- half a Nepali because there was this friend of mine actually who is half Dutch and half Nepali uh-huh. so the only Nepali interaction I had was this half Dutch, half Nepali guy and uh, you know, there's no Nepali, re- I mean there's a few there's a couple Nepali restaurants and stuff very expensive one where you you know, pay like 40 euros for a thali, uh, I'm sure you know what thali is, yeah, like I said, you know yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. so uh, that was out of the question so yeah, uh, in, in many ways I really had to kind of
0: 40 euro for a tally,
1: yeah, man. It's <laughs> ridiculous.
0: Jesus, I think I sell tallies in Netherlands now,
1: yeah, it is ridiculous. But yeah, it was, it was tough, man, to be honest. Uh, I'm a sentimental guy, so I was missing him a lot. The first year was very hard, I almost. Almost considered, like, I almost came back home, to be honest, Um, because it was so different. It was so different, the experience for me. And I was also struggling in school, uh, you know, being surrounded by, like, uh, all the competition, you know, healthy competition, I'd say, because it was a good school. It was good people, good teachers. Mm -hmm. But uh, at points, it was getting too much, uh, too much to keep up with, you know, just also working at the same time and all that stuff. So, So yeah.
0: So, you were working part-time as well while studying?
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah um more maybe not right in the beginning because i had like at least the first year i went there uh, in my in my head i thought that okay i have i'm going to save enough so that at least the first year i get to focus on the studies so not a lot of uh working in the first year but after that yeah the following years definitely was always balancing um yeah, like part time jobs and, and music and, and also teaching and, and gigs, uh, the kind of gigs you also not necessarily, I didn't want to, yeah, I didn't really prefer doing those gigs, let's say. But yeah, all kinds of jobs, musical, non-musical jobs, juggling those.
0: Gigs for bills.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly, man.
0: Let's talk about your professional um, trajectory in while you were still in Europe, because I'm looking at your credits now. You have, mm-hmm. You've written and played mm-hmm. for uh, some really beautiful uh, ensembles, um, Ludrich and Dichter, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. you've played on national TV and radio shows in the Netherlands. You've composed and arranged for uh, ensembles like the Jazz Orchestra of the Concertgebouw. these are some really, you know, legit and um, very well respected names yeah. tell us about that journey from being that mm-hmm. guy from Kathmandu struggling with the imposter syndrome who moves on to work at uh, an international level of this much credibility yeah how was that journey
1: um so this the, at the beginning like i said like i actually really didn't imagine i'd be doing um, I, I would be so productive musically during my school days. You know, I really didn't imagine that actually. I always thought that it's going to be at least four years. You know, when you're in school, I, I really thought that it's at least going to be four years of like, uh, you know, hitting the shed and practicing and, 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 and learning music mostly. But, uh, but I'm very, very happy that I actually didn't take long. Maybe already after a year into my studies, I was already involved in in the profession I should be playing with a lot of people um it definitely wasn't easy actually like I going back to this my fear of not being good enough and all of that and especially not having anything original to say was definitely kicking in again when I was in school um, um yeah definitely man also like you know I'm, I'm sure you can relate to that like you, I look different there you know absolutely. Uh, right and through that also you know I don't know you get ideas uh, like maybe thinking that, oh, fuck, I don't know, I'm never going to be as good as the Europeans or, or you know, maybe I um, shouldn't actually be playing jazz or like Western music and, and all kinds of thoughts, all kinds of thoughts. And so th- that was creeping in.
0: Did you ever feel like th- that was being implied by people around you? Uh,
1: definitely, <clears throat> definitely not musicians. No, definitely not artists, musicians or educators. But um, somehow I let it get to me, like, uh, uh, obviously, living there, I I, I love the place, I still miss it, Uh, definitely looking forward to going back again, but you know, uh, there, there was racism, like, you know just general racism when you're just living there sure. right i'm sure you've experienced that as well
0: oh yeah absolutely
1: fortunately like nothing horrible ever happened to me it's not like i was beaten up or anything but you know the 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 odd the um, uh, microaggressions sometimes you get comments on the streets yeah exactly yeah. right uh being treated differently and also sometimes maybe getting called names in the streets and stuff like that i guess all of that i let that get to me mm-hmm. uh i let that uh get to me also not only on a Uh, you know like a personal level but also to my arts and and and, and how I feel about music you know so uh, so that did play a part of it but I think most of it was again my own insecurities and stuff like that it's a
0: tricky zone you know it's a tricky like just the amount of energy it drains you of just to constantly worry about okay is am I imagining this or is this actually being am I actually facing racism or am I imagining it that in itself is yeah. such a huge drain on your system, you know?
1: I know, man. I, I really remember that it used to be exhausting, actually, sometimes. Yeah. It used to be exhausting sometimes. For, uh, like, not in school. I really don't want to give the wrong idea. The school that I went to, Code Arts, is a beautiful school. Absolutely. Lovely and
0: safe space. Yeah. Yes, I've been at Code Arts. My ex girlfriend studied there as well. Uh, and it's a beautiful environment. Ah, yeah. yeah. Th- these educational institutions, yeah. that's, th- that's, part of the role they play, uh, you know, that's the whole idea to, yeah. to, uh, encourage, um, diversity. And, um, that's the whole idea exactly. behind music. But once you're in the reality yeah. of, you know, outside these safe spaces, you know, it's like a completely different reality you're faced with. So it's all the more confusing in the beginning when you notice the disparities mm-hmm. between these parallel universes in the same geographical location.
1: Exactly. What were your tools to cope? Um, I think, um, like, yeah, finding the right circle, actually, I, mean, I think that leads to, to, to my professional life. There, I think I just got very fortu- lucky that I found the right musicians to play with in in the school. You know, like, I and mean, there's so many musicians to play with in school, and and then I was playing. I was going to jam sessions a lot and doing all kinds of projects, but this one band. Uh, called Woodrish, uh, which you mentioned also. Mm-hmm. Uh, that band actually started in in Cordtsburg we in school. The bass player, I, uh, no, the band actually not only the bass player. The band was already active. They were kind of the jazz fusion band um, uh, with uh, with a lot of different influences, like uh, like drum and bass, and and but also Western classical music because we had two string players. And Balkan music and stuff like that and uh, Beautiful. and these guys were amazing, I, I love them and miss them so much uh, but uh, you know, we, we were good friends and they were sort of open enough to be like hey man, like let's play together and let's write, uh, we'd love it if you write for the band as well so I guess all you needed at that point was that trust, you know, like uh, to find the right circle and uh, find people to trust in you and then I yeah, used that trust to I started with that band which was i think majority of my uh professional uh engagement in the netherlands was that band uh maybe not financially because we were still an independent band and stuff but like all of us we it was for the sake we love the music that's why we did it um but yeah that band uh, was quite uh not only creatively and musically satisfying but also that band opened a lot of doors because uh, through through those guys These guys were amazing They were all like working In other different projects And different ensembles So that opened a lot of doors And people started to see me on stage They started to hear my playing And my arrangements That's And sweet. like really through that A lot of doors started to open People just You know like uh, from a, Like Dichter You mentioned Dichter Dichter is a, a Rapper A Dutch rapper Based in Rotterdam mm-hmm. uh, I'm pretty sure Yeah he also kind of Found my music through that And then, like, so he's a hip hop guy who decided that, hey, maybe I'm going to work with this guy from Nepal. Uh, And then at the same time, they were like um, sort of contemporary classical ensembles. Like uh, there was this ensemble called Decaphonics, a beautiful contemporary ensemble. It's like a 10-piece ensemble. It was a string quartet and a wind, sorry, string quintet and a wind quintet together. So they were even like coming up to me It's like, hey, let's work together. So it happened very organically, I'd say. Uh, and those were the things kind of that helped me cope with uh, the culture shock, helped me cope with uh, racism as well, helped me cope with missing home. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'm just happy and for I feel very fortunate that, that that did happen organically. Of course, I had to hustle in the sense that you know find contacts and everything. but uh, and but at the same time actually you know you know how it is like all these uh, the projects that you mentioned, including, uh, writing for these ensembles. I didn't write for, I mean, you said Concert Cabal Orchestra. Yes, I did get to work with them. They're like the finest big band in the Netherlands, I think. Mm-hmm. I didn't uh, conduct her during when I was working with the Concert Cabal big band was the drummer. Um, uh, oh, I can't remember his name. Dennis Mackerel? Dennis Mackerel, yeah. shit. I can't believe I forgot his name. But he was actually conducting that whole project. So, he was the drummer of Count BC Orchestra for a while, and then he actually played. Uh, he conducted my arrangements. He gave me advice. He, that was surreal, man. That was one of the most surreal moments in my life. Like uh, to kind of to yeah to kind of just like d- be in the same room of that that, that lineage. Like, uh, wow. So that was incredible. But yeah, but yeah, know, fortunately, is, uh, no. Actually, what I was going to say was all these cool sounding pro- projects and like the creative ones and that really push you creatively and and you also kind of get a name for yourself are, are not always the most paid uh, well-paid ones Indeed. so obviously while this was happening and these projects did happen organically I'm thankful it was through the school and then my friends contacts that did happen organically but at the same time I also had to do a lot of uh, other gigs like um, you know cover stuff and then play a lot of sessions uh or even do i even did um what do you call it man cabaret i even did a cabaret gig oui. <laughs> in dutch i had no idea what was going on <laughs> <Yeah.
0: laughs> intimately familiar i've done a few cabaret gigs as well in the beginning in german uh, and i I was also only, yeah. only barely aware of what was uh, what was going on
1: yeah those things pay well so it was a balance of like doing those um not so fun gigs and but they pay well but it was also kind of making sure that you uh, find the right projects and, and cool people where the money might not be right but the people and the music is great um, for me personally i still follow this uh, sort of a mantra for me like even till this day it's like when i uh, when i'm kind of you know in the verge of deciding do i take this project do i work with this person this project this band whatever it's always i ask myself three questions And if two out of those three questions are valid, then I go ahead with it. And for me, it's just like, are, do you like the people? Uh, That's one. Uh, Number two, do you like the music? And number three, is the money good? And with those three, as long as you get two right, it's fine. So, you know, even if the money is shit or even if it's not paid, if the people are good and if the music is good, I mean, good in the sense that it's going to challenge you, it's going to keep uh, you on your toes, and and eventually, you know, make you a better musician. That's what I mean by good. Not only just fun music, and and also they are the people good. Do you like to hang with the people? Are there? And they're nice people uh, so even those if those two are there I'm going to do that but let's say if you don't like the music and the people are all right and if the money is decent then I take that also so it was kind of balancing these different kinds of projects uh, all the time
0: that's a pretty legit system man
1: yeah still try to follow that whenever I'm confused how
0: were your experiences with the work culture in the beginning did you find a marked difference in the manner people generally approached the mechanics of coordinating a musical project in europe i'm sure you did
1: like the overall work ethic yeah i actually found it very i i loved it to be honest because uh kind of uh coming from Kathmandu i think not, not only in music but especially in music and arts i'd say but like in generally uh we're not the <laughs> we're not the most like ethical people or like the most efficient people here in nepal in terms of in terms of work ethics you know like yeah. i really don't think it's it's not um, even punctuality is, is a very flexible thing in Nepal <laughs> it, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. right so and then I, I I did I definitely disliked that even when I was living in Nepal I actually had my struggles with that and that was weird because uh, you know before even before Europe I always found that uh, you know when people are too relaxed I didn't feel so comfortable I always felt uh, not so good when people are not meeting deadlines and people are not punctual Uh, I was one of those, um, yeah, you know, people, I guess. But clearly there's no space. Yeah, yeah, clearly, at least back then, clearly there wasn't much space for that in in the Kathmandu music scene, you know, like, so I I definitely couldn't, you know, like uh, create a scene or like be even vocal about it or like, you know, like criticize people for being late or like not delivering. Everything is like very flexible. You know, we even have this horrible uh, phrase that we use, especially... Towards uh, to to outsiders, we use this term called Nepali time, mm. and and that's supposed to say that uh, it's like you know, Nepali time is like ah, it's flexible, man. It's okay, I'm forty minutes late for the rehearsal. It's okay, it's Nepali time. That's how things work in Nepal, like you know, and that that showcases in like on, I don't you know, I don't want to um, <laughs> criticize my own people and my, but it's like that's how the country is, like you know, you go through the. We talked about public transportation, like. Let alone like all the the efficiency of Europe and like even like when someone asks me like, especially when there's visiting uh, friends from Europe or anywhere when someone asks me like how does public transportation work or like when someone asks me when does the bus leave, it's like the bus leaves when the bus is full, mm. you know <laughs> that's when it leaves. <laughs> like there's no schedule. Yeah, uh, uh, you know you're waiting. For, you know so it says that's how the country still is. So in terms of that. In terms of work ethics and things, things are very flexible in Nepal. The industry is also very loose, you know, like even till this day, uh, working with contracts is not so heard of, right? Mm. Working with deadlines is not so heard of. Um, So when I, yeah, so going back to your question, in Europe, um, firstly, it was a shock, right? Because I wasn't used to it. Uh, I was stressed out. Actually, I remember like because like especially the Dutch and well, not as much as the Germans, I guess. <laughs> but they're known for their punctuality and like yeah. how thorough they can be
0: yeah.
1: and all that stuff. So very maybe similar to Germany, but maybe not as much. But so that was a shock. I was struggling, you know, like always a little bit stressed out. Like fuck, I need to. I'm sorry, I, sh- I shouldn't be swearing. No, you're, okay. you're
0: you're you're uh, welcome <coughs> to you swear as much as you want. Uh, we, yeah, we we like okay. swearing
1: here. So um know. so uh, Firstly, it was a shock as well, you know, for me just to be able to, like, you know, making sure that I'm in lessons in time, even if you're like two minutes late, like you kind of get some vibe in the the lesson from the teachers and and your colleagues and stuff. So uh, that was... Intimately familiar. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, man. Exactly. It took me a while, you know, I had to miss a few trains and stuff like that to really figure out, OK, how do you actually do it and how do you pace yourself? Um, so once that was figured out, uh, I, I generally I really like the work ethics. I actually uh, I like to work like that. I like when there's clear deadlines, when the communication is clear, when there's people are being, uh, you know, held accountable for their responsibilities Um, so I learned a lot mainly you know at the end of the day uh, I learned a lot that I am still trying to implement here back in Kathmandu as well I'm trying to teach this especially as an educator I'm trying to set a good example and I believe that is is, um, it has been good saying that I'm (laughs) sole-handedly changing the work ethics here but at least I've managed to create a network of people who we 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 tend to work quite efficiently at least here and a lot of students are learning it at a young age. So yeah, in terms of those things, yeah, I learned very, yeah. I miss that, to be honest. I miss that. Sometimes I feel, sometimes I feel like I need a dose of that every now and then because things tend to get, things tend to get quite, uh, again, flexible here in Nepal sometimes.
0: Uh, yeah. <laughs> I hear you, man. I can intimately relate. I mean, um, I remember some of my initial uh, uh, experiences while figuring out schedules for rehearsals in Germany. And mind you, I mean, um, I did spend part of my childhood in Europe, but not Central Europe and never as an adult. So this was actually the first time I was living on my own as an adult in a very different mm-hmm. culture. And uh, mm-hmm. I remember like uh, th- like a couple of my colleagues like really sat me down over beers and said, listen, man, we really like how the way you play. But you keep doing you what you're doing. No one's gonna play with you. Uh, and That was the first time I was actually I was actually confronted with the fact that how serious this shit was. Yeah. And they were really kind enough to actually identify that I hadn't. I was actually because I was 20 years old. 20 is pretty young. Mm-hmm, yeah. And they, they they were kind enough to like really sit my ass down and then really explain to me that um we feel like you might be underestimating the implications of this. Mm -hmm. side to the uh, entire scenario you really need to get this shit together because if you don't you're just not going to find anyone to Mm -hmm. play with and i'm very grateful for them till this date and uh, i did put in the effort i put in the work Mm -hmm. i cleaned my shit up yeah Uh, but uh, eventually it got to a point now at this point i sometimes do find the work ethic uh, a little neurotic at this point after 22 years of being based there because uh, I've also seen the other extreme where the excessive stress on just the organizational aspect to it tends to override the vibe yeah. sometimes. I think Netherlands is a, is, a, is a nicer balance between the vibe and the organisational things.
1: Uh, yeah, I th- of course, man. I think I'd like to uh, just like to quickly add to that. I mean, Please. I, I don't think Netherlands is a good balance, to be honest. Like in generally, I've, I've seen those cases yeah. where people go to that extreme and then uh, and, and something I'd like to talk about is like I struggled with that also, actually, because um, I think it was 2017. So my last year in the Netherlands, actually, that, that whole stress and being able to keep up with the rat race, Uh, actually affected me in many ways like my mental health and physical health as well because I was pushing myself too much Um, and and not that the funny thing is not that anything anyone particularly pushes you that much it's just like you kind of lose sense of sense of it and I, I think that was the one of the Times in my uh, career where I actually, uh, you know, really started to question things again. I was like, man, do I really like doing this? Do I love music again? For a very brief period, right? For a very brief period, I was really like, "Ah, I don't know if this makes sense anymore. I'm constantly exhausted. I'm not happy. I'm grumpy. Um and uh, and sure, I'm making money, but <laughs> yeah, but no, but like not at the cost of happiness and everything. So I definitely did reach that extreme in some sense, right? I even affected my health and fortunately I got out got out of it uh, thanks to <clears throat> some help I seek, including, uh, yeah, including I even had to see uh, go to a therapist once. And one of my teachers, actually, the my main guy, the, my composition teacher, who's been essential in my career, but he also actually shared his experience on about this whole stress thing. And he actually, I never thought the thought that I studied with him for four years. I always thought of him as the perfect example. Of like, man, how does this guy do it? How is it so efficient, and how is he still so grounded, and how is he so healthy? I used to always question that, and he, I used to, I still do think of him as a very good example. But then he shared his early days when he made those mistakes, and um, not to get too much into detail because I want, I don't want to share someone's personal stories. But like, he struggled through like proper like breakdowns and panic attacks, and so much so that he was physically crippled uh to the extent that he couldn't work anymore he couldn't like get back to composing and having a career in music and when when he started to share these stories i started to see myself as like yeah that's where i'm heading that's where i'm heading if i don't uh you know change things right now
0: i can intimately relate
1: yeah i'm sure i'm sure you felt that yeah, too
0: i yeah. mean i've been uh yeah absolutely i mean we talk very openly about therapy on this uh Mm-hmm. this uh podcast and uh, it's ironically i actually got certified as a therapist myself last year because my journey with therapy was such a such an important one and the effect uh, like the positive wow. effect it had on my music and my art and my relationship with my work because uh like there's uh, an entire generation not one generation there's a like there's a lineage of uh musical education that is based on very toxic paradigms with relations to how one develops a relationship with one's art you know yeah. this entire um, uh, picture of the tortured artist you know churning out amazing works of genius just because while his soul is tortured all the time the, the, the extent to which it's been romanticized has had severe effects on uh, the overall landscape. uh, Yeah, man. Art art scene, I think. So, I mean, uh, I've experienced... um, I mean, 2020 was the last... uh, was the icing on the cake, I think, which is why I moved back to India for a while. It was very evident to me. I mean, when when I hear you speak about your experiences now... Uh, you, you take the words out of my mouth. it was exactly that point where I was like, wow, I mean, mm-hmm. I've here I am, I'm making a living as a working musician, but, you know, this is not making me happy, you know, yeah. working as a musician, in, I'm doing code marks here, because the yeah. price I'm paying mm-hmm. uh, in order to um, do that, mm-hmm. adhering to these hyper, hyper uh, vigilant structures, Mm-hmm. And I uh, think this is at some point it just wasn't even about music anymore. It was about uh, living up to and conforming to certain systems. Yeah, and that's the part about Europe I really struggle with now. Um, yeah. at this point, mm-hmm. uh, so I can uh, relate. Uh, yeah, very well. absolutely. Is that the reason you decided to move back to Asia?
1: I, I think one of uh, definitely one of the one of the reasons I'd say uh, quite an important one too um but yeah I can relate I, I don't know I mean I the thing is when I left I was uh it kind of the decision was a little bit mixed because I also like I said I was my health <clears throat> my health wasn't also so great because of uh, all, all the things I mentioned right the stress and everything I wasn't doing too well uh, I don't think I decided that okay I'm gonna I'm going back for good you know at least I had made up my mind that okay I'm just gonna go back home for a while at least um the other reason was uh, I kind of you know, that, that whole sort of crisis, or I don't know what it is, like, you know, like, I just mentioned that I found myself not being too happy, uh, generally, even though I was quite productive, doing a lot of things. Um, like, that was the point in my life, I also started to ask this, like, deeper and bigger questions, as in, like you know, like, what is my purpose? Like, what what should I be doing? Of course, music, yes, but, like, what in music, you know, what exactly... Uh, should I be doing where I would feel useful you know like very much useful and very much uh, what what could it be that where I'm being myself and because that, that's one of the reasons one of the things that <clears throat> struck me when I was working in the Netherlands as in it was great to be part of that thriving and dynamic scene but then sometimes it made me think as like okay I'm glad that I fit in at least musically and stuff but hey anyone can ju- do this job you know if I I mean, anyone in the sense that any anyone could take my position in this certain project or something like that, it's not that I'm doing something truly unique to myself. You know, I'm not telling uh, maybe in some cases, some projects like as as a composer, I shared my experiences and then I shared my own sound. But most of the times, like I said, the different kind of work uh, were uh, different kind of projects you need to do. Like most of them were like didn't really have anything to do with my you know ideologies, my ideas and stuff, my philosophies, whatever. Uh, so maybe that was one of the reasons why I was feeling exhausted, you know. It was really like, maybe you started to feel like a 9-to-5 job at some times, you know. I hear you. So then that's why I started to ask like, okay, so what, there must be some things in music. I started to question what could, where could I find my purpose, my own sound, if that makes sense, or, or, or share my stories and that would hopefully inspire other people. And so that's why I thought of uh, Kathmandu and especially KJC, the Kathmandu Jazz Conservatory, um, I was definitely at the back of my mind. I was thinking that, hey, I'd love to go back again because KJC, the school has already been, it still is, right? I'm still working there and it's always been a second home to me. And I feel like I also owe it to the school and then to the community Beautiful. and the music community back in Kathmandu. So I thought that, hey, maybe I'll go back, I'll teach some piano, I'll teach some composition, I'll teach some theory, whatever, and make myself useful and share my experiences and try to help. So that was the second reason uh, that ended up being the most important reason. And that ended up being the reason why I'm still here, I'd say. And then the, <clears throat> yeah, the, if there's a third reason, it was just generally I didn't see myself living in the Netherlands in the sense that I had been there for almost seven years. Uh, I was in the in the process of um, applying for a residency as well. Because if I had stayed a few months longer or almost a year, I could have applied for the permanent residency and and stayed there, right? And then not have to worry about a visa and stuff and not have to worry about work permit and actually, uh, let's say, make things easier, actually. So I was, that, that was my plan uh, in general. That was my plan. But then all of a sudden, I just didn't see myself doing that, like living in the Netherlands, speaking Dutch, learning Dutch, uh, n- nothing against... My Dutch friends and my Dutch community and the Dutch people. Huh? Like I still love love the country and I love them all. But next. I just didn't I just didn't see First myself doing that for the rest of my life, you know? Because at that point it was like that. So what's the next step? I'm gonna apply for the residency and then I'm gonna live here. And then what's the next step? I probably wanna settle here. Probably, you know, like if you think about the next steps in life, like family and stuff, I just didn't see myself growing old there or something like that. So um so yeah, those three reasons and but like I said, mainly being I, it just felt like the right time. Like I needed to come back home and do something productive and inspiring here, and I'm still trying to do that. And that's that's been the reason I'm here and staying here for for the time being, at least.
0: Mad respect, man. What? That sounds like a really tough decision to have made, especially so shortly before you're getting your permanent resident status. Because I know that's a tough yeah. position to get. It's not everyone just gets it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, mad respect for following your heart and like really making that call. Not a lot of people find it in themselves to do it. Thanks, man. What's it been like since you've been back in Nepal? How's it feeling?
1: Sorry, that's my cat. That's the sound. Your cat,
0: patters like a mean beat.
1: <laughs> I
0: know. I think I'm going to sample that later on and then send you a loop. That was so good.
1: Yeah, please do. Yeah. She's very musical. Her name's Tanduri, because we've, uh, yeah. Tandoori. So yeah. Okay. <laughs> Me and my wife found Tanduri. She was, poor kitten was abandoned in a Tanduri dhaba, um, by her mother, I Aww. think. So she was, she wasn't doing too well. So we got her back and decided to name her Tanduri, and she's doing very well right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, uh, being awesome. back in Nepal, um, it's been, <clears throat> it's been great, man. Obviously, Let's cancel out 2020 and 2021 <laughs> so far, but uh, <laughs> other other than that.
0: But you got married in 2020, didn't you?
1: I I did, man. Yeah, like during the lockdown, during the first lockdown, actually, just when yeah. things were opening up. So
0: it wasn't all that bad for you then.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was like yeah. <laughs> that's probably the only thing good thing that happened in 2020 but uh but other than that uh yeah man so like like I said like my plan was one of the one of the reasons to come back was like hey I'm gonna go and check out KJC the Kathmandu Jazz Conservatory and then see what I can do there I really just saw myself probably like you know teaching composition and teaching piano and working with young people doing ensembles like that kind of thing but the moment I got here, um, the previous director uh, of the, of the school and the founder, Mariano Mariano Abello, uh, the Spanish guy who founded the school, founded KJC um, ten years ago, I'd say yeah, ten years ago. Um, so he, so I came back and then I met him and I was like, hey man, and catching up because we've been, you know, he's, he was my teacher and we're very good friends. And but then he was in a state of his life where he was like, "Yeah, this is not working out for me." And then I think um, I've done my part in Nepal, and then I think I want to go back to Spain. So and and then the school huh. generally the school generally wasn't doing too well actually because, um, like Nepal, 2015 we had this uh, very serious earthquake. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then actually there were two in the same year. Actually, one in march wait was it april and may yeah but like big earthquakes that really destroyed you know that really caused massive massive effects massive like very serious consequences to the country that we're still recovering from to be honest like a lot of it we're still recovering from it even till this day um so after 2015 you know it wasn't a good time for the school because in generally, Nepal was going through this weird phase. Um, you know, mus- let's just say that music education wasn't on the priority of people, uh, of of musicians, of students. Yeah. So um, school wasn't doing too well. Generally, financially, it wasn't so sustainable. Mariano, the previous director, also had decided that, so he's going to step out. Um, and then I had just come back in. That so basically, him, Mariano, and then the um, the other founder, and also the current director. Uh, and my boss, uh, Mr. Nirakar Yakumba, him, uh, the two of them actually proposed that I um, direct the academics, that I take over at least uh, the academic side of the school, and and decide, you know, to kind of take the school into a different direction and try to see if we can bring it back, bring life back to the school. Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, so that was a big, uh, big shock to me. I really wasn't expecting that I had been back. Uh, in in some ways, uh, kind of tired of all the you know the stress and responsibilities and and uh, late working hours and all that. I had just been back from that and then and kind of thinking along the lines of hey maybe I'll take it a little bit easier now in Kathmandu, but then 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 the two of them kind of tell me that pretty much run the school right. Um, and then I that was a very confusing time. It took me a while decide uh, I wasn't sure I mean I was sure that I want to be around there but if the school wasn't going to be around then was there to be around right so um, I then decided to take that job actually and um, definitely I need to mention the other people working there back then including my wife uh, Maria so the uh, Maria who I got married to last year actually she that's that's where I met her she was actually volunteering in KJC that year when I came back, 2017. Uh, She had just, yeah, she had just gotten out of Berkeley. Is she dead? No, she's Spanish. Um, She's from Madrid, but then grew up in Central and South America most of her life. And then studied in Berkeley. So she had just gotten out of Berkeley. Uh, She studied jazz vocals and then decided, I guess she was in a very similar phase in her life uh, as, as I was, kind of wondering what to do and decided that maybe she's going to go volunteer in a music school in Kathmandu. So she was doing that and she was not only teaching vocals, but uh, her and a couple of other teachers, uh, Dahoud Salim, uh, who is also a Spanish uh, uh, Spanish pianist. Uh, the two of them essentially were kind of uh, teaching at KJC, but also st- starting this this program called what we call it now, the the diploma, it's like a jazz diploma program. So the these guys, uh, Maria and then Dahoud and a few of the teachers, uh, volunteers, they were kind of just laying the foundation of this jazz diploma program. But then the school was also on the verge of closing down. So I stepped in there and then I, I, I and Maria and Dahoud, especially they were like amazing people, like amazing educators, so passionate. And just because of their passion, especially Dahoud's, uh, passion, uh, like I was kind of attracted to, like, yeah, man, let's do this. I think we can do this. Let's try to get the school back up in his feet and and do what's necessary for the scene because the scene really needed a program like that, a, like a formalized, you know, systematic uh, program to study music, not only jazz, like, but just music in general because Carpando really likes that, you know, there's no, even till this date, there's no... Um, like a formal degree you can get in Kathmandu for Western music, at least you know you cannot get a bachelor's in music. Uh, even the diploma, the two-year diploma program that we um, designed is, is a private course. You know, it's not affiliated to the government or anything. Okay. So uh, these guys were laying down the foundation of that, and then I was just coming in. I love the idea, and then, then all of us together, we really shaped the program, we designed the program, we started it, uh, we started it in 2017, and then since then, that's been going very well, like, that's what keeps me uh, the busiest year, like, that's 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 my, the majority of my time goes to awesome. teaching and managing that program, Awesome. yeah, and uh, like I said, before 2020, things were going pretty well, I think, we were doing, uh, I like to believe that we would, we, at least in the jazz scene, we are doing what the scene needed, like it's not that um, there's a lack of musicians in Kathmandu, there's not, it's not really like there's a lack of jazz listeners and musicians in Kathmandu, but especially for the musician, there's a lack of uh, uh, space, right, and by space I mean uh, not uh, not access to education, I, uh, like today you can't really even say that there's lack of, like as long as you have the internet, you can access anything about right. uh, at least the you know, like, you know, things that are taught in school, like, you know, like the concepts, the ideas, right. the theory behind it, you can find that online. Yeah. Universe. So it's not like people lack access, but actually the space where you can meet musicians, you can do ensembles, you can jam, you can network with other musicians and find gigs and make bands and, and you know, play festivals and like that kind of thing, which is the most essential part of being the, being a musician you know it's, it's not only about learning your ideas and theories and practicing you need to apply it and that community yeah exactly yeah um and then that program like we wanted to address that mainly obviously the the curriculum and the academics is there and, and we do our best but like just creating a space where a safe space where people can come jam play with each other learn with each other Uh, they can host jam sessions they can do gigs you know we try our best to give our students the gigs uh, as much as possible so kind of just creating a momentum uh, for in order for a scene to work actually you know because it's not you can learn however much you can go to the best schools and you can uh, be a beast in, in your instrument and everything but if you don't have the space uh to 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 uh, apply those things then then it's useless indeed so in that sense the last uh, few years has been great uh, for me i feel quite useful going back to what i was saying like finding that purpose and all that stuff i've i've uh, i feel very lucky that I'm, I'm part of this and it's growing unfortunately the last two years hasn't been one and a half years uh, hasn't been so great but yeah uh, just hoping things will get back to normal again let's see
0: how has been the post-pandemic phase for you guys?
1: Um, well, it's it's like uh, to India we're still in the pandemic. I'd say because the first lockdown actually didn't hit us so much. Like we Nepal got quite uh, lucky in the sense. I mean, there wasn't a, let's say there wasn't at least a health crisis, gotcha. right? Because the lockdowns uh, that happened last year was very strict, and we at least managed to keep the virus out. And then the numbers quite low, mm-hmm. but that came at the cost of like really strict lockdowns that damaged many things in the country, including the music industry and music education. So, um, yeah, last year, uh, I think from March to December, pretty much, uh, no gigs, none of that. We were mostly in lockdown, either strict lockdown or partial lockdown in terms for the school. We were uh, teaching the whole program online. Um, uh, which which we managed to do, but obviously, uh, you know, like, I just mentioned that one of the most important things about the the education is is that space and being able to play with people. So like the most essential part of the program kind of was removed, and we were just doing online lessons. and uh, so that was a uh, that sucked quite a lot. But then twenty twenty one, January onwards, things started to look better. Uh, gigs were happening, uh, like recordings, festivals, whatever. Uh, School also started to kind of feel somewhat normal. We were going back to school, doing ensembles. We were actually planning a huge festival in April. Uh, This other festival I was talking about earlier is called Cat Jazz Festival. And uh, so that festival was well on its way. And then like literally, I don't know, three days before the festival, I uh, can't remember there must have been something like mid-April April 15 or something like that uh, then we got into this part of the the second the phase second the wave. second wave hit us Damn. Yeah, oh, and, man, so yeah and very similar to India I think Like it has hit us very bad very bad this time and we're still so we're like kind of it's still uh, the numbers in the past few days seem better but we're really still peaking right now gotcha. in the climax so um, yeah I don't know so I'll be able to answer that in a uh, in a month I hope but uh, I don't know I have a feeling things are going to look better the numbers are going down people are getting vaccinated uh, so I think it's only moving forward from now on
0: I really hope so yeah brother I hold a candle to that thought fingers crossed where's the best place to find you and what's the best way to support you in your work Abhishek
1: oh um cool um i'm on instagram as abhishek badra so that's a just my name a b h i s e k b h a d r a um i'm quite active there with my music uh, i've also got a facebook page same uh, facebook profile and page with the same name abhishek Padra, um yeah. and then in terms of Uh, And also I'm on YouTube, of course. But supporting me, um, my most recent and active project at the moment right now is called Juni, um, J-O-O-N-I. Juni is in Instagram and and in Facebook and all of that as Juni Music. And we came out with an album last year. Uh, which we're still promoting now. We actually did a, a official album launch right before lockdown. The, this lockdown. Uh, so uh, yeah, like you can find that album. It's called it's self-titled, Junie. Um, I'm very happy with that album because it kind of fits. It took a while, but it kind of uh, addresses my purpose as well. Uh, but not purpose, but like let's say you know what I was talking about, like trying to find my own sound and music, yes. and find my space in jazz and the jazz idiom, let's say. But with this album, I'm kind of trying to find that and I'm addressing that, I hope. Um, it's an album I put together with some local musicians in Kathmandu uh, and also quite a few international musicians. Beautiful. Most of them, actually all of them who were traveling through Kathmandu and especially volunteering or teaching at the Kathmandu Jazz Conservatory. Beautiful. So the album has, um, you know, some traditional musicians as well, like uh, you will hear the Batsuri and you will hear the Tabala, but uh, yeah I've also got like I also wrote some stuff for uh, saxophonist and a full jazz rhythm section uh, a couple of musicians from the Netherlands who came uh, and my wife is uh, also the founding member Maria my wife uh, who's also the founding member and also the singer in the band so you can find that album Juni Juni Music in and, and iTunes and Spotify and all platforms Beautiful. Uh, you can definitely support us by that and then check out KJC as well Kathmandu uh, Jazz Conservatory you can support our work at KGC by simply just following us I, I'd say uh, and, he, and following our students most importantly because the scene is really happening here and I think there's going to be lots of good things coming from Kathmandu in the near future I hope so
0: beautiful yeah. we are definitely going to make sure we get some people mm-hmm. out there on those links and FYI They will be included in the episode notes as well. This was an absolute pleasure, man. This is this. It was so good to connect with you. Thanks for coming on. Thank
1: you very much, man.
0: No, thank you. It's It's been a pleasure. Likewise, so many parallels to our stories. There's so much I can relate to uh, with respect to uh, your story. I know, man. It's very inspiring.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think we draw a lot of parallels. You remember when I first discovered you, and like that's exactly the first thing I I thought of you, like a South Asian. Guy, a keyboardist, a pianist in Europe. And like, yeah, because you know, like, you know how it is, man. There's not many of us, you know, let alone musicians, you know, there's not many of us in Europe anyway. Uh, I mean, yeah, well, quite a few. Relatively more Indians, but especially, for, uh, you know, especially in the music industry, not so much, I'd say. Not as many. So, yeah. um, it's also yeah.
0: crazy because we have two cities <laughs> in common, right? Because you're one of the very few people I know who even know Mannheim exists. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some musicians, I mean, obviously <laughs> musicians in Europe know about Mannheim. And it's crazy. Like, uh, you- I remember you mentioning that Mannheim's is the only German city you've been in. And that's been my base for a yeah. while. And I used to uh, live part-time in Rotterdam uh, for a while as well. Awesome, so. man some crazy connections yeah, and there. now you're, uh,
1: you're back in india or yeah i'm uh,
0: i'm Just i'm uh, i'm uh, in calcutta right now at uh, in my parents place so i'm actually like pretty close to where you are right now as well i've uh, i'm mm-hmm. um, i'm i'm hanging out here till global travel opens up again because uh, what's happened now is uh, you know planning a trip yeah. to india from europe is at least a week so, uh, I want to be close to my parents until yeah, global yeah. travel opens up again. And until I can be, you know, travel within 24 hours, I want to be close to my parents and my family. So in case mm-hmm. there is any support they need from my side, I can be there for them because, uh, I've had friends who've had very painful yeah. experiences wherein, you know, their family needed them and they couldn't travel and they even lost members of their family. Yeah. And I'm not built for that kind of thing emotionally. It's not something I could deal with. So I made a call and, uh, yeah. Uh, I will be back in Europe for a couple of months now, in the uh, summer. But mostly, uh, like you, I'm wrapping up loose ends for now. And I'm moving back to India for uh, a few months until things settle down. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm starting a master's degree in, cool. uh, in fall. But that's all online.
1: Oh, cool. What are you studying?
0: Yeah, I'm doing a master's in music. And I'm, I'm specializing in songwriting.
1: Nice, man. Sounds awesome.
0: Cheers, brother. Gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end. Please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our shows so you know when the next episode is out. This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. Well, having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love. And